welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Okay, I've got a question for you. Which, it's a rhetorical question, so don't answer. But what is the most important question, most important doctrine that Christians hold to? What is the center of what we believe? What is the foundation of the gospel? What is something that is stamped on every part of the Christian life that we, it shapes how we, how we live? The answer to that is that it's the doctrine of the Trinity. Some people said, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. Um, so, and you've probably heard it before, and you think, that's, isn't that some like, kind of philosophical idea? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. How can there be three and one at the same time? It's hard to understand, I know, but we're going to dig into that today. And what I want to show you is that, this is the main point of the whole message, so, to show that God is Trinity. He's one God in three persons, distinct persons. That as the Trinity, he's the fountain of joy and love and generosity. And that this is something that is so important for every part of our Christian life. So I want to step back and think about something. Something that we as humans desire and we love and we delight in is unity and diversity. Like we love how the whole galaxy, many different parts, but they all fit together and work like, a, like someone's conducting them, like an orchestra. And even last week I was at this conference... There was 8,000 people singing, but there's this one guy who conducts them. And so all these different sounds come together in a beautiful harmony, and it's beautiful. We love unity and diversity. Maybe there's a reason for that. And I think the reason is that we have a God in whom there's perfect diversity and perfect unity. And you can illustrate that in many different ways, how we love that. There's lots of different other examples you can think of, but... Our God, we believe, is one God, three persons. So, I'm going to step into Matthew 28, 19, to begin this. It's going to be, there's nowhere in the Bible that the word Trinity is used. So, the Trinity is a summary of everything the Bible teaches us about God. So, it's going to be all over Scripture today. But we're going to start in Matthew 28, 19. 18 to 20, really. It says, all authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus says, the Father has given me all authority, and I'm commanding you to go and teach them what I've commanded you. And while you do this, the Holy Spirit, I will be with you through the Holy Spirit. And But what I really want to pay attention to is verse 19 where it says, baptizing them in the name, singular, one name. And in the Bible, the name means like someone's character, their being, who they are fundamentally. When it talks about God, it's like who he is as God. So it's one name, 
the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here's kind of a basic picture of the Trinity. It's that it's one name, one God, who is simultaneously Father and Son, Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And so some, some people might think that's a contradiction, like how, how is one equal three? But it's, it's not saying, it's not the same thing. So it's not saying one cow equals three cows. It's like there's one God in three persons. And it's hard to understand, but this is, we don't expect our God to be something that's easy for us to grasp. This is what we believe in the Bible. So, yeah. And I'll use the word essence or being or nature to refer to like who God is. Godness, what they all have in common. And then person refers to what distinguishes them. Their roles and their relationship to one another. Okay, next I'm going to go to John 1, 1 through 3. And this is a beautiful passage about the Son of God, the Word. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this is definitely a good one to go to if you're not there right now. But I'm going to look at this. Okay, first it says, in the beginning. That should immediately make us think of Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here, it doesn't say God. It says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And later in verse 14 and 15 and 17, you'll see that the Word is Jesus Christ. So whenever you see the word, word, it's talking about Jesus Christ. It's talking about the Son of God. So he's saying right here, in the beginning was, was the being from, in the beginning existed the word. So he's saying right there that Jesus is eternal. And only one person is eternal. Only one being is eternal. That's God. So before all time, Jesus was. And the word was with God. So he had fellowship, in that fellowship and intimate communion with God for all eternity. And the word was God. And this just blows my mind. Like, he was God. That's his being, who he is, essentially. But he's also with God. Intimate love, fellowship, communion for all eternity. Jesus, he had that with the Father. So he's eternal. He is God. And he's also with God. But one more thing it says in verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So that's just saying it positively and negatively that he's the creator. Positively, everything was made through him. Negatively, nothing was made without him. Which means that he was not created. Because if nothing was made without him, then, which this might be kind of hard to grasp, but that means he wasn't created. So you have to think on that for a second. But So here again, we just see this, like, there's, now the Holy Spirit's not here, but there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're with one another, but they share the same being, the same Godness, the same essence, the same nature. And, yeah, in, in John 10, 30, Jesus actually says, I and the Father, two different persons, are one. And that, that's our God. And we don't fully understand it, but it's what the Bible teaches, and so we love it, and we believe it. So, now I'm going to try to summarize all of this through five logical propositions that kind of set forth, just summarize what the scripture says about the Trinity. So, 
Could we get that on the screen in five propositions? I think that's going to come up on the screen. Yeah, okay, there we go. So, the first thing is that there's only one God. JT read it earlier, Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Then we have Jeremiah 10.10. He says, there's all these different idols, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. And Deuteronomy 6.4 says, there's only one God, so you have to love him with all your heart. He deserves all your affection and love. And it's all over scripture that it says that God is one. I think it's Isaiah 42.8 that says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I will give to no other. God is jealous for his glory. He says, I am the only God. I am the only one who will be worshipped and loved and adored. So there's one God. That's clear in scripture. But, but the Bible also says that the Father of Jesus Christ is God. Malachi 2.10 says, have we not all one Father and one God? And is not one God who created us? So there's, the Father is God. That's what it's saying. He's the creator. Um, then there's lots of different passages that kind of introduce, they say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those are up there. But it, it, when it puts it in a conjunctive relationship like that, it's saying that God and the Father are the same thing. So the Father is God. And 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, which is up there, it says, for us, there's lots of different people call, people think there's lots of different lords and gods out there, but for us, there's only one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So, so the Father's God. So God, there's one God, and the Father's God. Next it says the Son is God. I'll move a little bit faster, but... We just saw it in John 1, 1 through 3. It said the word was God, and the word is Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 5 says, talks about the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Blessed means praised forever. So he's saying that Jesus is God over all, the sovereign one, and he's going to be praised forever. He deserves to be praised forever. Only God deserves to be praised forever. He's saying Jesus is worthy of worship. So the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is God. And this is a little bit harder to find because in, in the Bible, they were mostly trying to prove that Jesus Christ was God, but it's there. Um, in Acts 5, you guys maybe know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Does anyone know what, what, they, what happened in that story? Calvin? They tried to cheat the church by not giving them all the money they sold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. So, yeah, and they died. That's an important part of the story. They lied to God, basically. But the interesting thing in that story is they say, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? In the verse 3, I don't know exactly which verse it is. Verse 3 says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? The next verse says, why are you lying to God? It's saying, lying to God and lying to the Holy Spirit is the same thing. And there's other verses, but the point is, there's one God. The Father is referred to in Scripture as God. The Son is referred to in Scripture as God. And the Spirit is referred to in Scripture as God. They're all worthy of praise. They're all our God who created us, who saved us. So they're all God. But some people will say, well, well, maybe it was just that in creation, God was the Father, and in redemption, he was the Son, and now he's the Holy Spirit. He takes different forms. But that doesn't make sense with what the Bible says, because it also says that they are distinct persons. And so you can look at Luke 3, 21-22, Jesus' baptism, when he goes under the water. So Jesus, the Son, is being baptized. And the voice 
comes from him, to him from heaven. It's the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then it says, The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. So three persons are all there, distinct. So we believe that there's... And there's other places in the Bible where like, the Son prays to the Father, where they say that they're going to send the Holy Spirit. So that just doesn't make sense unless you believe that there's one God... The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And that they are all distinct persons. So that's a basic summary of the doctrine of the Trinity. I know that's a lot, but there's a mountains of evidence in Scripture for all that. So that's how we summarize it. And then I have a diagram that kind of helps explain that. And so F is for fathers, S is for Son, HS is for Holy Spirit. So it says the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So that's talking about how they're all, they all share a common being, a common godness. But at the same time, it says, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, which is about their distinction in persons. So they're all one God, but three different persons. Does that make sense? Yeah, that is, that's our God, and it's like, we don't understand it perfectly, but that's because God can't be contained in a box. It says, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain him. And there's a place in Nehemiah where he says, Blessed be your name, O God, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Our words fail to describe and praise who God is. Angels can't even do it. And so we see who he is. We worship a God that we can't fully understand, but we know that he does love us. And that's the next point. So I just showed you that our God is a trinity. Three Three persons, one God. But why does it matter? How does it touch our life? What is it? Why, why is that something that should be beautiful to us? And I want to show you that as the Trinity, he's the fountain of love and of joy and of generosity for all eternity. So, it's really a question of what sets them apart. Because, you know, Muslims believe there's one God. We believe there's one God in three persons. And the fact that he's Trinity sets him apart from all other gods. So, basically, I want to ask a question. Was God lonely before he created the world, before he created us? Was, did, was he like, oh, I want a friend. That's why I'm going to create the world. Um, God is love, right? First John 4 says God is love. But how could he be love if he had no one else to show that love to? That would be a hard question to answer if you're a Muslim. But it's not for us. Because we believe that for all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were in this just beautiful love relationship. Overflowing with joy. That's why he's called the blessed God. The word blessed means I'm happy I have everything I need. I don't need anything else. I am content. And God is called the blessed God because he's happy in himself. The Father's happy in the Son. The Son's happy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's happy in God. So I want to show, that's kind of what's entailed in the, the names that they're given. So there's a Father and a Son. And God created Father and Son relationships to be a reflection of how he loves his Son. How the son loves and adores his father and honors him. And the father delights to give him anything he asks for. So 
Think about Abraham. So Jesus Christ is called the only begotten Son of God in the Bible. John 3, 16, first, uh, no, John 1, 14, John 1, 18, lots of other places that call him the only begotten Son of God. And another place where that term is used is about Abraham, where it says in Hebrews eleven seventeen, my only begotten Son, Isaac. He offered him up. And it's trying to show two things. That one, as the only son of Abraham, Isaac was the heir of everything. Abraham was going to give him everything. He, and then also, he loved him. Genesis 22 says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and give him up. So, the point is that Jesus is the only begotten son of God. And God loves him as, as an only son. And he's going to give him all things. So I'll show you some verses to, that kind of illustrate that. John 3.35 says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. John 5.20 says the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, which in context is talking about how the Son's doing all these miracles, and he's saying, it's the Father. He loves me so much that he's giving me, me these miracles to do to show off my glory as the divine Son of God. So God loves his Son, and he wants to display his glory. Um, we already looked at it, but in multiple places in the Gospel, God is eager to save Jesus. We saw in the baptism. This is my beloved son, with whom I am pleased. Isaiah 42, which is, it, Luke 3 is referring back to that, it says, my servant, my chosen one, in whom I delight. God delights in his son. And it's just all over the Bible, all over history, it's God's plan to exalt his son. And John 17, 24, Jesus says, Jesus loves us, right? And so if he loves us, John 17 is about his prayer. What does he pray for, for us if he loves us? And what he says is, Father, I ask that they whom you have given me will be with me where I am to see my glory, which you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world and gave him glory. And Jesus loves us so much that he wants to let us see his glory too. He wants us to see his glory. That's the greatest good we could have. So, words fail really to express how much the Father loves the Son. He created all of history so that Jesus Christ would be preeminent, so that Jesus would be exalted, so that Jesus would be adored by every one of us who comes to salvation. And even those who don't believe in him, their knees will bow, their tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It says that in Philippians 2. That's God's whole plan, to exalt his son because he loves him. He loves his son. And I can't describe it well. I wish I could. But God loves his son. He's loved him from all eternity. So was he lonely? No. God is the fountain of joy. Fountain of generosity because he's always been giving to his son, overflowing in goodness to his son. And he is just happy because he has himself. He has his son, the Holy Spirit. And... What's beautiful, though, after this is that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What we're just saying that God loves his Son more than anything, it says God so loved the world. He loved each one of us whom he made, that he gave him up so that we might have eternal life. 
1 John 4, 9 says, God is love. Which makes sense to us now that we know that God is trinity. It says, God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world, his only begotten son, into the world so that we might live through him. God loves his son, yet see what he put his son through. And what the son willingly did to save us. On the cross, the son, who had forever been enjoying God's presence and delight, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was crushed. He had known the love of God for all eternity, knew his hatred against sin, because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he did that because he loved us. So just see, God is a fountain of love. He loved his son, and he loved us so much that he gave himself for us. So why did he create the world? Not because he was lonely, but because he is love. Not because, let me see, not because he was empty, but because he was abundantly full, overflowing. He created the world as a stage to manifest his love and glory so that we might, we might enjoy him. Our chief end, our purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To love him and rejoice in his love. And to love other people. So God created us so we get a fellowship with him. So we can glorify him. So we can love him vertically and love others. But the problem is we don't live like that. Because sin came into the world. And where they once ran to the Father in love, when they sinned, Adam and Eve hid from him. Because they were ashamed of their sin. And when they once loved one another and were good and kind to one another, they started blaming one another. Said it was, it was theirs, it was their fault. Or, next chapter, Genesis 4, you see Cain killing his brother Abel. There was once unity, love, and peace, and now there's hatred. And that's in all of our hearts. When we hate someone, when we're angry with them, when we call them names, when we gossip about them, we slander them, we say evil things about them. Maybe we hold a grudge against someone and we won't forgive them because we think we just deserve to be justified and they sh- we're just not loving. Maybe the way we use our money. When we get money, we're like, I just want to use it for myself. It's not wrong to buy things. You know, God's money is a gift buy things that we enjoy, but where's our heart when we, use, when we have money, when we have anything? Are we overflowing? Do we give? Or do we suck? Do we suck in like, are we bent in on ourselves? That's a sign if we're selfish and hateful or just whatever it be, it's a sign that we don't know God. Do we find God boring? Or do we love him and run to him? Do the light to pray, to seek him in his word. That's how sin cursed what was meant to be good, us glorifying God and enjoying him forever. But it's not the end. God sent his son to die for us. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, so that we could be restored to fellowship with God. And that's what eternal life is. John 17 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. No means like fellowship, means love in the Bible. And so God gave us eternal life so we can know him forever. And 
That's important to remember because a lot of us think in, in our culture today, it's like, well, to be a Christian means that I believe in him and he forgives my sin and I just be a good person and then eventually I'll get into heaven where there's not going to be suffering. So yeah, that's all true, but it's much better than that. It's much more beautiful. The greatest gift of the gospel is not being forgiven. It's getting God. It's being restored to him. It's being reconciled to God and reconciled to others. First John says, Jesus, the eternal life was made manifest among us and we're proclaiming him to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the Bible describes eternal life as fellowship with God, as communion with God. Samuel, so the question is, would you be content with heaven if God was not there? And Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan, a guy from like 400 years ago, said, heaven and Christ are the same thing. Rutherford continued, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. And Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Because God is Trinity, He's an overflowing fountain of love and generosity and goodness and joy. The greatest gift we could have is him, to fellowship with him. Do you see that? And that's why John Bunyan was able to say this about the doctrine of the Trinity. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity. You may ask me what that is. I answer, it is that doctrine that shows us the love of God the Father in giving of his Son. The love of God the Son in giving of himself. And the love of the Lord the Spirit in his work of regenerating of us that we may be able to lay hold of the love of the Father by his Son, and so enjoy eternal life by his grace. It's just God's love overflowing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bringing us back into communion with themselves when we've been cut off from them. So, God didn't create us because he was lonely. He created us because he's love. He's the Trinity, one God, three persons, he was happy forever, and he wanted us to share in that. That's how good he was. He, wants, he says, I'm enjoying the Son's glory, and I want others to enjoy that, too. I want them, I want more to benefit. He's just overflowing, so that's what we want to be. So, there's the God is Trinity, one God in three persons. And as a Trinity, he's the overflowing fountain of love and joy and generosity. And finally, I want to show you that we need the whole Trinity for the Christian life, for our salvation and for the Christian life. Samuel Rutherford again said, I know not which person of the Trinity I love the most, but this I know. I love them all, and I need each of them. As you read the Bible, you'll notice that everything, especially in the New Testament, has like this Trinitarian shape. It's from the Father. He's always giving planning to do good to us. Through the Son, the Son accomplished it when he died on the cross and suffered in our place, and it's by the Spirit. So, JT said this before, I remember a while ago at the prayer night, he said, it's God who plans it. He plans our salvation. He purposes that many of you in this room who believe in him right now, he planned that you would be his. Because he loved you before the foundation of the world. 
And then the Son came and He died for you. And then the Holy Spirit came later and He, he regenerated you so that you could believe in Him. And that's, if we didn't have the Father, then there would have been no initiative to save us. If we didn't have the Son, it would have never happened, even if we had a plan, because there's no way to bring us back to God. And if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't matter that Jesus died on the cross because we'd never believe in Him. So, it's important for our salvation. We need the whole Trinity to be saved. And it also applies to different parts of our life. So think about our suffering. How does the Trinity help us when we're suffering? Romans 8, Romans 8 28 through 30, and Hebrews 12 say that God works all things out. The Father works all things out for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And Hebrews 12 says that we're his sons. And so when we suffer, it's actually him disciplining us. So whenever we suffer, God's using it to make us more like him. It's going to make our joy that much greater when we are with him in heaven. And our suffering, the son, he suffered just like us. He can sympathize in our weaknesses. If you struggle with depression, if you are lonely, Jesus had the worst sorrow. He was called the man of sorrows. He was forsaken by all his friends. He said, he who ate my bread with me has lifted his heel against me. He was betrayed. And any suffering you're going through right now, Jesus has suffered and he can sympathize with you. And finally, the Spirit. He, Romans 5 says that the Spirit enables us to rejoice in our sufferings. Because He tells us, hey, the Son loves you. He reminds us of that through the Word. And He gives us hope. Think about temptation. Maybe you're tempted to sin. I don't know what the temptations you face each day are, but we all are sinners. And so, think about how the whole Trinity helps us in our temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says about the Father says, no temptation is overtaking but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. So, temptations will come. They're sure to come. But the Father's not going to let anything come into your life that you can't handle by his grace. Because he cares for you. He's watching over every moment. He's protecting you. And it says in Hebrews 2 that... Since Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to give us grace in our time of need. He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And the Holy Spirit says in Romans 8, 13, by the Spirit we can put to death the misdeeds of the body. So the Father helps us in our temptation by keeping us from greater ones. And the Son helps us, the Holy Spirit helps us. And finally, And look at our assurance. How can we know that we're saved? Because we all sin a lot. We, all, we don't like to sin. We hate it if we're true Christians. We want to love God, but we, we fail sometimes. So how can we know that we will be with God in, eternity, in heaven one day? How can we know that we're going to fellowship with Him and we're going to enjoy that love and joy and generosity forever? Again, this shows that we need God in every part of our life. We can, we can know that we'll be there. We can have assurance about our eternal security because the Father purposed. Do you know that when he made the world, he said, I've got this purpose. I'm going to save, I'm going to save Karen. I'm going to save Olivia. I'm going to save Everett. I'm going to save many of you in this room. I don't know exactly who's saved, but God had a purpose before the foundation of the world. And he's not going to just get, that plan's not going to fail. The Father has a purpose. The Son died for you. If Jesus died for you, he's not going to let you 
fall away. He says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And the Holy Spirit now dwells in you to sustain your faith in every temptation. And we love the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. What you might not realize, and I'll read it, it's what the song is based on, Christ our hope in life and death. <clears throat> but you might not realize that it's also Trinitarian. So, listen, for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It says, what is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins, and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserved me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. <clears throat> so it says, how can you have comfort in life and death? That if you die, you will be saved, you will be with God? Because Jesus the Son died for you. Because you belong to him. And he's not going to let what belongs to him be lost. To hold on to you. And because the Son, it says... Without the will of my Heavenly Father, not even a hair of my head can perish. Indeed, everything, everything that happens in life is actually subservient, which means it's going to serve to advance the cause of my salvation. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit now works in me. It makes me willing and ready to obey Him. And that's the final thing. How does the Trinity apply? How do we live in light of that? The Holy Spirit now makes us willing and ready to obey the Father who loved us and the Son who loved us. So... It changes the way we pray. It changes the way we live. All of salvation comes to us from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. And everything we do is by the Spirit working in us, through the Son, unto the Father. And because I could never do anything good that God would accept. Because it's all tainted by sin. But Jesus died to purify me with his blood. And I never had the power to do anything good. That was really, truly good. So I need the Holy Spirit to work that in me, the Son, to purify those so that I can offer it to the Father. And then he delights in it. Just like a father loves it when a kid brings an ugly little crayon drawing up to him, God loves it when we bring our very feeble attempts to serve him. When we bring it to him, because he sees it like his own son, Jesus Christ, was bringing it to him. So... I just want to quickly apply this. If God is a fountain of generosity and love and joy, should we be like a black hole, just sucking in and bent on our, in on ourselves? No. We shouldn't be holding grudges. We shouldn't be gossiping. We shouldn't be trying to destroy, but be like God who gives, who loves. And it should display his joy. And also, if Jesus died... So that you could have fellowship with God. If he shed his own blood so that you could have eternal life, which is knowing God. And if the Father who loved his Son so much gave him so that you could have eternal life, then shouldn't you make use of it? It says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You're all sinners. And whether you think you're a Christian right now, you are a Christian or you know you're not, you all need to believe in Jesus every single day. 
And so if, you want, if any of you have not believed in Jesus, believe in him. And he says he'll give you eternal life. He'll let you have access to his love, to fellowship with him for all eternity. And you don't have to do anything to earn it because he's a fountain. He's not trying to ruin your life. He's trying to give you life. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything to make yourself acceptable because God is love. And if you believe in him right now already, then make use of what you have. Pray and seek the Lord because you were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So live your life and think about how that trinity affects every part of your life. There's so much to say, but just remember that God is, our God is a trinity, the triune God, one God in three persons, that as such he is the fountain of love and joy and generosity and that that is stamped on every part of our life. We need every person of the Trinity when we're tempted, when we suffer, to assure us of eternal life, to save us. And we can commune with them all now. And this is 2 Corinthians 13, 4. It says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, would your grace with your love, would every one of us here in this room realize your love for us? And Jesus Christ, may your grace, may they realize that your grace abounds to cover all their sins. And may they enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I, if we want all of us to be filled with you, please, please draw them to yourself. Help them to know what it is to be brought back into fellowship with God forever. And to desire not heaven, but you. You as the greatest gift of salvation, the greatest, most desirable and lovely thing, being there is. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.